On today's episode of The Secret Society of Stuff, we interview Ross Coulter, multi-award-winning investigative journalist and author of the best-selling book, In Plain Sight. Without further ado, let's get into it. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Dude, this is gonna be fucking this is gonna be dope. Have you have you seen the new documents about uh sunburn and brain damage and possibly Havana syndrome being related to UAPs? Oh, I thought you were sending me something about your last doctor's appointment or something. I didn't know what that was. I was like, God, man, I'm sorry. I feel so bad for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm super stoked. This, this should be really fun. I've got some interesting insights on Tom. I can't say his name without laughing. I know. Fuck. All right, I'm sending Ross the link. I told him uh, we were doing pre-show to feel free to come on whenever he wanted. That way he's got a little bit. Oh, of yeah, uh, this is going to be fun. Do you see what I sent you about what Rob 3 said about what's going on in New Mexico with the homeless population and people just slaughtering them on the side of the fucking road and nobody gives a fuck? No. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Very good. How are you, sir? Good morning. Very, very well. Uh, is this audio good for you guys? Yeah, it, it sounds great. How are we? Ross. Yep, yep, yep. All good. Uh, about to you guys? Austin, Texas here. Oh, great. Great town. Yeah, buddy. And I'm east of Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, okay. Rob lives about um, 13 miles, is it west of a nuclear power plant? He's had some pretty wild experiences from some of the, um, the crafts that have buzzed that area out there. So you've actually, you've seen them, have you, Rob? Yes, yes, I, I'm an actual experiencer. So that, that's what put me into the rabbit hole. Ah, okay. No, because <laughs> it's funny. I, I was I didn't realize until I spoke to Bob Hastings, Robert Hastings, the author of UFOs and Nukes. I didn't realize how widespread the uh, visits to nuclear sites were, because uh, as far as Bob can tell, every single nuclear missile silo and every single nuclear weapons plant has been visited. Goodness. It's it's such a strange phenomenon. I, I was listening to some of your interviews with Jai Mungle and one that you gave, I, I forget what the name of the cast was, where you were talking about how varied the phenomenon is. And in my experience, I, I found that, that one hypothesis doesn't really explain everything to me. It's not very satisfactory. I agree with you. I, I, I think the ETH, as we say, is probably the least likely explanation for the vast majority of the phenomenon. Uh, I don't think these are little green men from another planet, frankly. Yeah, I, I don't either. But, you know, then again, the time hypothesis, I hate to say time travel, it just sounds so woo-woo, you know? It, that doesn't really explain it for me either, just considering they supposedly started coming in 1947 or 1945, rather, with the first uh, uh, nuclear tests. But there have been so many accounts of these things throughout history that that hypothesis doesn't really account for those things either. I, I agree with you. It's funny. I, I've been kind of amused because um, I'm a journalist. All I do is report what I'm told, basically. Right. And uh, I, I talk to a large number of people in your defense, national security infrastructure. And a, a number of them had talked to me about the time travel hypothesis, future human hypothesis. And uh, next thing I know, I'm an advocate for this hypothesis, and uh, I'm essentially being reported as a champion of it. And uh, I don't necessarily agree with it. And, you know, friends of mine who, who know a lot about quantum physics and the possibilities of time travel, they're very skeptical about it as an explanation. But uh, a lot of people mistake journalistic reporting of what I'm told for me espousing a particular viewpoint and that's not the case at all right and you know i'm not a, i'm not a journalist i have no journalistic you know credibility whatsoever <laughs> but uh I, I've found that even theories like the IDH you know the interdimensional hypothesis and then there's the occult hypothesis all of these things it, it seems like wherever you focus your attention 
you're going to find evidence that supports that theory. And that's what really interests me about the whole thing is the subjectivity. Yeah. of. It. Yeah. And I, I look, frankly, I, I actually think the interdimensional hypothesis is probably the most plausible. Yeah. It fits best with the facts. But I mean, I, I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility that, that we have been visited by a, an extraterrestrial and off-planet civilization or intelligence. I, I wouldn't discount that at all. But um, I'm quite struck by the fact that many of the people that I talk to suggest that the phenomenon has been here for a time immemorial, uh, that it's been around us and, and it's been part of our society without us realizing it for thousands of years, if not millions of years. Could it be terrestrial? Well, in the sense that it resides on this planet, yes. So what about its clandestine operations? Well, you might say clandestine, but if it's an interdimensional life force, then maybe it's sharing this planet with us in another dimension. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think one of the things about quantum physics, which I regularly try to understand, but generally fall face first into the book that I'm reading, but I've got good mates uh, who are scientists who try and explain it to me. And, you know, they say that a lot of what we would call magic and a lot of what we would call the phenomenon may in fact just be interdimensional manifestations of other life forms. And uh, one of the things I think we're realizing as science becomes clearer <laughs> or less opaque is frankly that a lot of the things that we had as sort of Newtonian certainties, you know, the old ideas that, that science had basically explained everything and that we now know everything for sure. I think the more we learn, the less we realize we know. That's right. I think empiricism is, is just about dead. I mean, the things that we can, you know, touch, smell, see, feel, and hear, we're getting to, to these areas and reality that we simply can't experience in those ways. So we built these prosthetics to help us, you know, understand them. It's, it's starting to get a little scary, to be honest with you. Well, the thing that I find interesting as a journalist is all through my career, I've been really struck by the way that Science likes to be declaratory. It, it likes to assert that the certainty is over. Um, I mean, for example, the, I mean, the, the science of global warming. I mean, we're constantly being told that the settled science, that, that essentially the, the mathematical models that are used to predict global warming have made it very, very clear that, you know, we're headed for an apocalypse unless we do all we can to reduce fossil fuels. And the reality is that if you actually look at the science, the science shows that, yes, we should be doing all we can to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, because frankly, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to be still using ground up dinosaurs to drive our machinery. But the reality is that the mathematical models aren't certain and that they are, in fact, very vague and that a lot of the predictions that have been made about global warming have been completely wrong. But science persists, I think, in trying to assert authority by asserting certainty where there is no certainty. And one of the things that fascinates me about quantum physics is that we're, we're still getting our brain around things like the double slit experiment with quantum physics, where something can be both a wave and a particle. And whilst quantum physics has been able to prove using the double split experiment, that it is possible for light to be both a wave and a particle. Nobody yet has been able to explain the physical how? manifestation how. And, right. and it's really interesting because we, we've gone from all of those Newtonian certainties where at the end of last century and the turn of the 20th century, we were being told that scientific certainty was now upon us and that really all of the great questions in physics had been resolved. We now realize that's not the case at all. So I think, frankly, the, um, the reality is that we're looking at a situation now with UFOs, UAPs, where there is a phenomenon. It's real. We don't know if it's extraterrestrial. We, we assume, I think, on the basis of evidence, there's overwhelming evidence that it's intelligent. I'm actually making this note during editing. I was listening to this and I thought, how is it intelligent? I mean, are we ascribing intelligence to something that is simply playful, like a dog is playful? Are we, in fact, anthropomorphizing ourselves onto something that is so inhuman that we can't even comprehend its form? These are questions that I've had for quite some time, and I don't have an answer for them. I mean, it's possible that they're intelligent, and I don't mean to suggest that they're stupid or that they're animals and should be treated as such. I mean, we really need to treat our animals better, eat more vegetables. It's clearly technologically superior. Um, 
modern science has had its head up its ass for much of the last 70 years trying to avoid discussing the issue. And now the evidence is so overwhelming, frankly, uh, that even the mainstream media has still got the blinkers on. They're still reluctant to engage in most cases. And uh, the, the interesting thing is that slowly but surely science is being dragged to the reality that um, there is indeed a phenomenon that's real that, that cannot be explained yet. Yet. And I find it interesting as well that the, the scientific method, you know, the engine which drives science, it, it was never meant to prove anything. It has one goal, and that's to disprove anything that isn't what it set out to find, which is the ultimate reality. Um, yeah, but again, but again, I'll tell you, I think the scientific method, whilst I applaud it, I think it's a great thing to have a discipline with how we objectively prove things. The, the scientific method, frankly, is a big steaming pile of bull dung. It, it's, it's rubbish. Ultimately, the pompous assertions that are made by many in science that there is this method that everyone agrees on as a way of establishing reality as a way of essentially proving a phenomenon. If you apply the scientific method to UAPs, the existence of UAPs would have been accepted long before the Pentagon finally was pushed into a corner and forced to admit it in July last year. I just have a bee in my bonnet about the scientific method. I think that, I think that, um, you know, uh, as a journalist, I've learned the way that science allows itself to be politicized. And I think there are a lot of the gatekeepers in modern science who, frankly, have their heads up their asses on UAPs. They are reluctant to acknowledge the reality that is there right under their noses. It's why I called my book In Plain Sight. In Plain Sight. I, I, I agree with you, Ross. I, in fact, I think that it's become more of the, the political method than the scientific method, to be honest yeah. with you. I mean, I, I, I really do. And I think science is often used to shut down public debate in Australia. I, mean, I had a, a Rhodes to Carthage moment myself as a journalist when I looked at the science of global warming and I rang the Australian members of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and one of them, John Zillman, admitted to me that he was a global warming sceptic, that he didn't agree with the science. Hang on a moment, you're one of these 1001 or whatever it is concerned scientists who are regularly being parroted by uh, the different green groups as a person who unequivocally supports the, the, the theory that the world is headed for catastrophe with global warming. And he said, well, nobody asked me. <laughs> and, oh my God. And, and that was and it's interesting because I've done that research and I've spoken to people all around the world who who are members of the IPCC who privately and publicly admit that they are skeptical about the claims that are made by mathematical algorithms that are used to predict weather which frankly just can't because you know well, our mathematical models and our computers are nowhere near being able to predict something as complicated as a weather system. And whilst I unequivocally support the idea that we should be running a Manhattan-style project to develop nuclear fusion or alternative energy systems, you know, the biggest priority on the planet right now should be finding a way of providing energy cheaply to everyone on the planet. I rather suspect that, yes, it is true that there is a kind of a coterie of fossil fuel producers that are essentially protecting their nest by discouraging further research and investment in alternative energy systems. But the bullshit that's spun about renewables and the idea that renewables are going to be a solution, there is no fucking way that wind power is going to solve the world's problems with energy. It's weird. Right. And I find the truculent resistance of some who use science to essentially catastrophize the planet and suggest that the, the roof is falling in because we're killing our planet because we use fossil fuels. I, I mean, frankly, I agree with that. I think we should get off fossil fuels. Absolutely. Right. But you can't just dismantle an industrial society that's been created in the last 150 years and expect that you can um, walk away from that without having an alternative energy system. And, you know, it's the dishonesty in science that I find um, unscientific. Yeah, there's definitely bias in the one place where there shouldn't be bias, and that's in the scientific community. Um, do you remember what his specific hang-up was over the data? You're talking about the guy that I spoke to, Zillman. Yeah. Uh, basically, he had a, an issue with the fact that the mathematical algorithms that were being used on supercomputers to predict 
weather system outcomes weren't accurate. And, you know, he was the head of the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia at the time, Dr. John Zillman. And so he was basically telling me, yeah, I'm a member of the IPCC, but I can tell you the mathematical modeling that I'm seeing is not matching what we're seeing. It's over-predicting. It's it's over-catastrophizing what's happening to the environment. And he said, there are clearly variables that we're not factoring into the mathematical models that are lessening the effect of the warming. He argued that, yes, we do. Of course, we have to look for alternatives to fossil fuels. And, you know, he was endorsing very much the idea that, you know, society should be moving away from things that pollute our environment. Of course we should. That's a given. That's why this phenomenon is so fascinating, because if we could somehow employ the technology that we're clearly seeing happening around us, uh, being able to control gravity isn't isn't just like the perfect weapon. It's the perfect thing. Right now, the only thing that makes gravity, as far as we know, is mass. You just need a bunch of stuff, and it's a property of mass. It's, you know, we observe gravity, we see what it does, but we really don't know what it is. We can throw some equations together and say, well, it works like this, but we really don't know what's behind it. But if you can make a machine that on demand makes gravity. You know, all the stuff we write fiction about stops becoming science fiction that afternoon. Force fields become a reality. You can shift time. You can make impenetrable fields. You can have propulsion that is mind boggling. Everything becomes possible. It's the most important thing. And here is an operating machine sitting in front of us that makes gravity. And we really want to be able to make one of those things. It would be the ultimate weapon. Not just the ultimate weapon, but it would really be the ultimate thing. It would catapult mankind forward. And what really sucks is the military is in control of this. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, look, fundamentally, this is the most important thing. The Pentagon's admission that this phenomenon is real after years of equivocation and telling us that it's swamp gas or weather balloons and telling us that 90% of these cases can be plausibly explained with a prosaic explanation. The fact that they've now done a double backflip with Pipe and acknowledged that what we're looking at is something that we cannot explain, that it's a technology. I mean, documents released yesterday uh, in an FOI, a Freedom of Information application, I think uh, the US edition of the London Sun published it just in the last two days. They show that internally, the Pentagon is referring to these craft as vehicles, something intelligently operating vehicles using technologies. And this is the kicker. They are technologies that are clearly deriving energy in a way that we do not yet comprehend. Because the energy that would be required to do things like what we know, what the Tic Tac has been observed doing. There's one example, I think the uh, Scientific Coalition for the Study of UAPs, SCUAP, They did a bit of research just looking at the one example of the tic-tac that was seen hovering at 80,000 feet and in the blink of an eye in 0.78 of a second or less, Kevin Day recorded it on the phased array radar system on the USS Princeton going to the surface of the ocean. Now, the SCUAP scientists analysed the energy that would be required to do that. And they said that it would exceed the consumption of the entire United States from every single nuclear power plant in the United States for one year. Just that one manoeuvre. The the implication. And so this is the thing that is fascinating to me, is that right under our noses, there is a technology being deployed that is using energy in a way that we do not yet understand. And this is where I think the mainstream media is largely dropping the ball and failing to understand the implications of what the US Pentagon, the most powerful military on the planet, has admitted. It is fundamentally admitted that there is a technology operating on this planet that is beyond human comprehension. And it involves the deployment and the use of energy systems that are clearly extracting energy, possibly from the vacuum. And the implications of that are extraordinary. What is the single most unsettling thing you've heard about this subject? 
the malevolence, the potential malevolence of whatever this phenomenon is. So I do a podcast with a guy called Bryce Zabel called Need to Know, which I'll also shamelessly plug. Great podcast, by the way. But, but one of the last episodes we did, we talked about the evidence suggesting that contrary to the um, happy, clappy, benevolent notion that all UAPs are well-intentioned and kind, which is, I guess you could say, the, the, the Dr. Stephen Greer uh, argument that, that whatever this is, it's no threat to humanity. There is actually evidence to show that people have been hurt by UAPs and that they have engaged offensively, not only with military, but with individual civilians. And I talked last week about a case where a, a good friend of mine, Damien, Damien Knott, who's an Australian experiencer and uh, UAP investigator, he suffered terrible apparent radiation injuries suffered by close-up exposure to a UAP. And it's interesting because I've been told stuff. I did a piece in my documentary um, about cattle mutilations, which was almost tangential to the issue of UAPs. But I did a first edition of the documentary in, I think it was June, July last year for Channel 7 Australia. And um, what happened was I got phone calls from all over Australia from veterinary surgeons, like well-qualified, university-educated, postdoctorate veterinary surgeons, some of whom have actually worked at senior levels in government in Australia. And they were telling me consistently that there was a really anomalous phenomenon of mutilations of cattle. And on some occasions, animals like kangaroos, quite weird surgical incisions into these animals where specific organs had been removed in a way that they would not be able to replicate, even with the most advanced cutting machinery that we now have at our disposal for modern surgery. Bloodless surgery. Uh, I mean, I think the most dramatic one was a very senior veterinary surgeon who's actually served at a national level on a veterinary body advising government on issues relating to animal husbandry. He rang me out of the blue and he insisted on anonymity, but he allowed me to read his autopsy reports and look at his photographs. And he was called out to look at a whole lot of dead animals on a farm that had died in really unusual ways. And they'd all had organs and limbs, parts of their lips, ears, tongue removed in ways that he could not explain. Good and then God. on the way out of the property, he, he noticed a dead cow by the front gate. And he said, oh, what's the story with that one? And they said, well, it looks like it's just died because there's no external injury. So we didn't tell you about it because we, we don't think it's related to the UAPs that we saw over the property a few nights ago. Anyway, he did an autopsy on the ground right there and there. And as you know, I've forgotten how many tummies, how many stomachs cows have. Three. I think it's three or three. And they all sit on top of one another. And apparently when you do an autopsy on a cow, you have to lift each individual stomach out. It's a huge, messy job. But, you know, the last stomach is right up against the rib cage. And to get to it, you've got to lift out the other stomachs. It's a ghoulish job to do in an autopsy. So he lifts out the first stomach nothing there. There's no signs of any contusion, no signs of any surgery. Lifts out the second stomach, nothing there. And then he gets to the hole where the third stomach should be. I've seen the autopsy report. There's nothing there. Whatever it was had removed the third stomach of this animal without leaving a drop of blood. And it had essentially surgically removed the third stomach of this cow in a way that he said was just anatomically impossible. Like he, he was the one who breached the um, stomach lining of this animal with his scalpel to do the autopsy. There was no discernible invasive injury that could explain how something as large as a cow's stomach could have been removed. This is a creditable scientist that has advised the Australian government on issues related to animal husbandry. And, and he said to me, Ross, I'm as perplexed by this phenomenon as you are. But he said, it's real. And he says, I'm going to put you on to a whole series of other scientists who, who've had the same experience. And these scientists have been very careful with me. You know, they've all insisted on anonymity because they're worried about the ridicule and the stigma that's attached to the phenomenon. But whatever it is, it's killing animals. And, and as we discussed on the podcast, the Need to Know podcast last weekend, there is actually evidence to show that 
people have been killed. People have been killed. There's an incident in England where a man was found on top of a coal slag heap. And if the killer had walked up the side of the coal slag heap, you would see footsteps. And the, 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 the report, the coronial report investigating this death shows that there were no discernible footprints. But this poor man's mutilated body that clearly showed signs of the most appalling torture and exsanguination and removal of certain organs, he, he'd been mutilated by something that had dropped him in a crowded city on the top of a coal slag pile. Then you've got things like the Calaras incidents in Brazil, where numerous Brazilian villages described being hit with beams of light and suffering terrible burns. And in some cases, some people were actually killed. We were just reading an article about this physician who had been commissioned to write a report on the physiological effects of close encounters of the third and fourth kind. And he said that like one in 10 die within five years and the remaining suffer what can only be described as the same symptoms as the Havana syndrome. Is this Dr. Kent Green you're talking about? Is, is it, Rob? I believe it was Kit Green's, yeah. Yeah. Green's yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Kit Green's the former head of the CIA's weird desk. He's the guy that used to work in the Central Intelligence Agency handling the weird shit that no other part of the agency wanted to look at, <laughs> essentially. Right, yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, he's a highly credentialed, extremely well-respected doctor who, who has done a lot of work. And, yes, you're right, he's been doing work very recently into the, um, the Havana syndrome. Probably, he hasn't said which agency, but, again, probably at the request of the CIA. But there's a bit of ambiguity about what he and another doctor, Professor Gary Nolan from Standard of Stanford, have been talking about. They've been doing a collaboration looking at this issue. But um, in some cases, people who have described close-up experiences with UAPs, with the phenomenon, have been observed by Gary Nolan, Professor Gary Nolan at Stanford University, to have enhanced caudate pitamen in the basal ganglia of their brain, which essentially is a positive thing in many ways. It suggests that there might actually be a genetic difference for people who are more prone to having these experiences of contact with the phenomenon. But what Kit Green has also talked about, and Gary Nolan has also alluded to this, is that as well as the subset of Havana syndrome patients who've died from exposure to what appears to be some kind of beam technology by a state-sponsored actor, probably the Russians, the interesting thing is that there are also people who've died in a similar way from exposure to UAPs close up. And just to come back to the question that you asked me, you know, what's the most sinister and disturbing thing? I've spoken to people in the defence and intelligence community who've admitted to me that, that they have had weird paranormal experiences where after their exposure to what they would call, a, if you like, a classic UAP encounter, right. they've had, I suppose you could call it ghost-like experiences where they've, I mean, some of this is on the record, actually. Some of these people have spoken to um, George Knapp and Colm Keller for, for their book, Colm Kelleher, for their book called Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. And there's a thing called the hitchhiker effect where uh, people who'd been to the Skinwalker Ranch, particularly people who'd been at the sharp end of combat, they were followed home by the phenomenon. And <laughs> in one case, an alleged werewolf or whatever it was, some kind of dog-like creature in the back garden that scared the living daylights out of them. Um, I mean, it's that stuff that... You know, even though I find it confronting and I feel a little meek about talking about it with you because I'm reluctant to associate myself with it because it sounds so completely off the wall and loopy, right. yep. you can't dispute it. There is something paranormal that is associated with UAPs. And that's that's the scary thing is, is that it, it somehow overlaps our subjective reality and spills over into that part of the world that everybody can see. Yeah.
No, I, I, I agree. It, it, it is. It's, I, I mean, I've spoken to people in Australia who have been involved in UAP encounters at or adjacent to very sensitive military bases that we know are linked to the US strategic nuclear deterrence. Such as Pine Gap. Pine Gap, the Exmouth Herald Holt uh, Naval Communications Station. And when you push these people they're not just saying they've seen UAPs, you know, strange, anomalous, orb-like objects. They're really freaked out by the fact that they're also seeing paranormal phenomena, weird shit. And I I don't think divorce one from the other. I was just wondering, Ross, if if you're familiar with uh, Chris Bledsoe and the Fayetteville incident and a high level of uh, government-involved people who've met with that family. Yeah, look, I, I am. I've, I've actually had a, a brief conversation with Chris and with Ryan. And uh, at some stage when I go to the US, I'd love to go and see them and experience what they've experienced. I've also spoken briefly to the theologian professor, Diana Walsh-Pasulka, uh, right. who's taken a close interest in the Bledsloe case. And I was also fascinated. I'm very interested in a guy called Hal Povenmire. He, he was a guy who worked in NASA uh, and became fascinated with UFOs, so much so he ended up writing a book called UFOs and Alien Abduction Phenomena. Uh, it's, a, it's a scientific book that I really recommend people read because <laughs> he was essentially one of the, you know, the, the top NASA rocketry scientists. He was you know, Florida-educated. He ended up working on the NASA Apollo missions, Apollo 8, Apollo 10, Apollo 11, studied space technology. And I find it fascinating that he became a very close friend of the um, of the Bledsoe's and took a close personal interest. And it was his groundbreaking work uh, that that I think led to the CIA taking an interest in the Bledsoe family. I don't know what to make of the case. I'm not in a position yet to be able to make a value judgment about whether or not what I find about their story is credible, because I'd like to see it for myself. Because Ryan and uh, Chris, I understand, deeply religious. They see it through the prism of their Christianity. I mean, maybe maybe one of the things about the phenomena is that we perceive it in the way that um, our belief system and our cultural values allow us to perceive it. I'm not sure that what people are seeing with their eyes is necessarily what it is. One of the things I'll point you to is something I write about in my book, but you can also find references to it online called Slide 9. Slide 9 is a series of PowerPoints that were found on Chris Mellon's webpage that were clearly used by the people in the Pentagon investigating UAPs to brief a very senior official in the US Defense Department about the UAP issue. And I suspect it was at the time that they were trying to get special access program status and they were knocked back by the gatekeepers inside the Pentagon. And it eventually led, I think, to the the disbanding of that particular investigation. But one of the things that they wrote on one of the slides, which was the ninth slide in a PowerPoint, was that the phenomenon, whatever it is, has the capacity to meddle, to influence human perception and consciousness. And it suggested that Fundamentally, these objects, whatever they are, are capable of psychotronic weaponry, capable of manipulating human perception. And so if what people are seeing all around the world is a craft, like we're seeing lenticular metallic discs, why is it that 150 years ago across the continental USA, when there was another wave of weird sightings of anomalous objects in our skies, People weren't seeing lenticular discs. They were seeing ships. Airships. Airships, literally vessels being held aloft by balloons. Things that I think were just remotely plausible within the belief system of people of that time. And then if you go back further in time, medieval England, people saw weird orb star-shaped objects hovering overhead, sort of tubes tic-tacs, dare I say, the Bible, described wheels within wheels. Right. So what I'm suggesting is that there's a phenomenon that has been seen throughout human history and recorded by humans and seen and perceived. 
but perceived in different ways. And, and that's where I'm going. I, I, I don't necessarily know that, that what we're seeing is the metallic lenticular disc. See, that, that reminds me, anyone who's watched video, you're going to I've been talking and I can't hear anybody. Oh, no, um, can you hear no, us? No, you're, you're good, Ross. Can you hear us? Well, I guess that's it. Yeah, we can hear you, Ross. Oh, I'm sorry, my headphones um, audio had died. Did you get what I was just talking about? Because I, yeah, yeah, we did, we did. Oh, good. Fascinating as hell. I was just, I was mentioning after you finished that um, that people should check out uh, the Carl Sagan video where he discusses the fourth dimension and tesseracts. Um, that you know how the Flatlanders can only perceive what this fourth dimensional object is using their own senses. Um, that that seems like a pretty good. Again, another point for the IDH hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one of the analogies that I like is that essentially we're like fish in a fishbowl. And periodically we see this weird phenomenon that manifests itself at the top of the bowl, but we don't really understand it. And, and we try and explain it with what we have. And, and frankly, I think slide nine is probably the closer to what we're going to get eventually. That, that essentially, yes, there is technology behind all of this because it has to be capable of being scientifically explained no matter how complex and how weird and paranormal sounding it is. But I think the least likely explanation is that it's nuts and bolts engineering. I, 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 think, this, I think that it's, it's fundamentally linked into human consciousness. And I'm increasingly drawn to the idea that, that it's interdimensional. And I'm also not excluding the possibility that it may, in fact, be humans from a future time period. Some of the, the stories that I've heard, I mean, you know, obviously it's all conjecture, but I mean, some of the things that I've heard about the Roswell crash, for instance, like Gerald Anderson's account of it, you know, his descriptions of this thing were so vivid. One account was from a, a man who sent a letter to Stanton Friedman. He said that the DOD eventually theorized that they were powering the craft through some form of I don't know, uh, psycho telekinetic energy or something like that. I mean, you you hear all these different stories and you really don't know what to think. I mean, Lou Elizondo was a was a disinformation agent, wasn't he? Well, look, everybody who's worked in counterintelligence uses disinformation, but I think it's slurring Lou Elizondo to basically say he was just a disinformation agent. I'm very sure Lou Elizondo was a patriotic and remains a patriotic and extremely dedicated American citizen. Frankly, I'm just tired of the bullshit for a lot of people who keep on trying to pull the guy down. Dr. Greer in Third Phase of the Moon, you know, just released this new documentary. I'm sure it's all about Smear and Lou's reputation. Look, I mean, the, the bottom line is, I do think that there is an agenda inside the US government. I mean, I, 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 there's, no, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that there are officials in the United States government who know a damn sight more than they're prepared to let on publicly about the phenomenon. Um, I mean, the public has been misled. You've had 77 plus years of the public being told, frankly, that this phenomenon is all BS. Get on with your lives. Treat it all with ridicule and stigma and contempt because it's just rubbish. Anybody that looks at the UFO, UAP issue as is a tinfoil hat crazy. These can be plausibly explained. Trust your military. Trust your government. Believe us when we say this is all nonsense. And yet right. we now know privately behind the scenes they were lying. There's no other word for it. They were lying. And, and the interesting thing about this is that it is technically illegal after the Watergate hearings, after the findings that were exposed during Watergate of CIA Cantil Pro operations against the American public. It was actually mandated by legislation. And this is something that Lou Elizondo says repeatedly, and people don't understand it. It would be a crime for him to be committing disinformation against the American public. I talk all the time to people in intelligence services around the world. It's part of my job as a journalist. And the thing that I found fascinating was when I started investigating the UAP issue and started reaching out, particularly in America, I was expecting people just to go, you know what, this is just rubbish, Ross. You don't know what you're talking about. Why are you writing a book on this? This is rubbish. Instead, what I found was that there were people at quite senior levels, former and serving, operating in intelligence and defense, and national security all around the world, who actually said to me, oh, Ross, fantastic. 
A credible journalist is prepared to investigate the phenomenon. This is really good. Let us help you. We're, we're really keen to see this talked about because we're puzzled that people aren't following the clues and looking at what's there under their noses. In plain sight. In it's plain there. Sight. Just read sight. the history. Look at what the CIA has published, largely, by the way, as a result of... Um, pressure that came from John Podesta when he was the chief of staff for Bill Clinton. You know, they pushed inside the Clinton White House for disclosure of what was known historically. What people don't realise is that the historical documents that have now been released by the NSA, the CIA, the DIA, they show a completely different counterfactual history to that that's been presented to the world over the past 70 plus years. For 70 plus years, we've been told UFOs, UAPs are not a national security issue. They don't pose a flight safety risk that 97% of them or whatever can be prosaically explained with natural phenomena. uh, And and it's clearly not the case. And we now know that behind the scenes, they've secretly been running programs to investigate the phenomenon. And one of the allegations in my book is that there is indeed a program in existence in the United States, which has been operating secretly now for decades, where the United States is actively trying to back engineer recovered non-human technology. Our first UFO recoveries were in the late 30s. We made it a couple in the beginning of the 40s and then came along, which the public found out about. We got two live aliens. One died shortly thereafter, one lived until 1957. We found out that so far there are 18 different alien species that we know about monitoring Earth. Monitoring Earth. Some are good, some are hostile. Most are indifferent. Uh, we found out that we are the experimenter product, if you will, of, of, of an alien race who we never met. All we know is that the greys are cybernetic organisms who work here at the behest of their employers, monitoring us, monitoring us through, through. Abductions occur on a daily basis, daily basis, throughout the United States to at least 10% of the population. 10% of the population. The deal was struck that in exchange for advanced technology from the aliens, we would allow them to abduct a very small number of persons and we would be periodically given a list of those persons abducted. We'd have nothing less than the technology we bargained for and found that the abductions exceeded by a million-fold 10% of the population. What we had naively agreed to. In 1954, President Eisenhower met with a representative of another alien species at the Iraq Test Center, now called Edwards Air Force Base. This alien suggested that they could help us get rid of the graves, but Eisenhower turned down their offer because they offered no technology. Shortly after this, it was determined at meetings between the U.S. and Russians that the situation was serious enough that a Cold War should be manufactured as a ruse to divert attention of the public away from UFOs and towards some other threat, the H-bomb. It was also decided to keep the ruse secret from any elected or appointed official within both the U.S. and Russian government. In the late 1950s, NASA was formed to compartmentalize and sanitize information from all space platforms and vehicles. The cover-up and the personnel to run the operation began to get bigger and bigger and required more and more money. We were enforced to inflate the defense budget. Then we got into the drug business, which was still not enough. These are five-second slides of the 18 different alien species. The guards at one facility are carefully indoctrinated over a period of several months, being shown pictures similar to, but not exactly like the aliens. Before these experimentations were done, we had two guards die of a heart attack as these aliens came down the hallway unexpectedly. The object that you're looking at now is the Kecksbury acorn brought to Wright Pat in the middle 60s. That film is of dead aliens being pulled from the wreckage of their craft that crashed in Atlanta, California in the 50s, supposedly from Tau Ceti. That craft you see over there now is over 250 feet diameter and had to be buried on the spot. These pictures you're looking at now are the structures on the moon. That's the tower in Sinus Medi. It's over seven miles tall. And that thing there is what we call the Colossus of the Durham in Narica Science. We don't know what it does, but the machine itself is bigger than Brooklyn, New York. New York. Now, I don't make that allegation lightly, and I've been waiting for somebody from the United States government to deny it. And I keep on saying it and saying it and saying it because I have sources on the record who've admitted it. And the interesting thing is nobody's denying it. The U.S. government is evading answering this question. Has it recovered non-human, alien technology? And are we at the moment secretly, you as taxpayers, funding a secret program that is essentially investigating how to back-engineer this highly advanced technology.
I mean, Ross, we, we clearly are. We clearly are. There's, there's too many breadcrumbs that show that, I mean, nitinol was discovered in a naval ordnance lab, what, four years after the crash at Roswell. We're constantly discovering new metamaterials, strange metals. I mean, they're being published as if we have the stuff already and we're just trying to figure it out. I mean, technology has, what, quadrupled every year, two years, something like that. It's it. I can understand one black swan scientific event happening, but not one every day. That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, humans are very ingenious. I mean, I, I think we can be proud of what modern science has achieved in the last 100 to 150 years. But yeah, I mean, the pace of technological change is just incredible. And um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken to people who said that whilst the Corso book, which talked about seeding uh, different American corporations with technology was misleadingly written in that it made assertions about things that weren't entirely accurate. I'm told that it is the case that that some corporations have been given access to technology and, and encouraged to find ways of back engineering it. And the problem now, this is the really interesting thing, is that companies that previously thought this was all rubbish, they've now realized that for decades they've been operating at a disadvantage because they weren't in the loop. They weren't being given that same access. Right. And so you've had the US government playing favorites with defense contractors where they've been allowing favored corporations like Battelle, like Lockheed Martin, uh, to basically be seeded with this technology, I suspect. And now the, the interesting thing is that there are other corporations that are saying, well, hang on a moment, what about us? Right. You know, where's, the, where's, the, where's the righteousness in the government basically playing favourites? And I think this is part of the issue, is that there have been so many lies and so much essentially process corruption that's gone on to facilitate this scientific investigation that, that ultimately uh, it's now coming to light. And the problem that we have is that uh, the scientific, the one thing about the scientific method that I do admire is that what drives good science is the sharing of ideas. If it is the case that there is a secret program, and I suspect there is, operating inside the private aerospace and also inside the United States government, that's researching this issue, then part of the reason why I'm told it hasn't made huge gains, you know, part of the reason why we're not propelling our craft with free energy or, or um, you know, uh, anti-gravity systems, which we know must surely exist because right. the technology is flying in our skies. Somebody's yeah. doing it. Um, the reason the reason why that's not public yet is because we haven't been able to crack it. And I've, I've spoken to scientists who purport to have been part of what they refer to colloquially as the program, and they admit that they were given access to what they described as bits of technology, very, very heavily compartmentalized secret programs where they were trying to back engineer things that they were shown. And the problem with that is that modern science rests on sharing ideas and exchanging information. And frankly, you know, the, the big lesson of history is that, you know, the one, the one event where we did this in secret was the Manhattan Project uh, during World War II. And, right. uh, you know, obviously we were frightened about sharing that technology with the Russians and the Chinese and every other nation that had an authoritarian bent. And I think that's part of the reason now I can kind of understand why what's happening is happening, that essentially, if it is the case, and I suspect it is that the United States government has got access to non-human technology, then I suspect part of the reason why they're not sharing and why they're not publicly admitting it, admitting it is because they're worried about these authoritarian dictatorships getting access to this technology. Frankly, right. you know, we, we're living in possibly the most dangerous period in human history ever right now. You know, the, yeah, I think this sure. is a more dangerous period than even the dark days of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the atomic doomsday clock is closer to midnight now than, than at any other time in its history. And so... Why would you want, if you had access to this technology and you were a Pentagon general or a president or a national security advisor, why would you share this technology in a way that would mean that nut jobs like Vladimir Putin or 
the North Korean leader or, or President Z of uh, of China. To your yeah. to your knowledge, Ross, how much of this information do you think the uh, Clintons were privy on between them and Podesta? A large part of what I'm going on is is speculative. Okay, I, I can't be definitive about the Clintons because neither Bill nor Hillary has responded to my right. requests for an interview. But Bill's made it clear that while he was president, he did ask. And it's really interesting because part of the thing that was a huge revelation for me is watching the way that both Bill and Hillary Clinton's resolve has hardened since Bill was president. Because Bill and John Podesta, who was one of Clinton's senior advisors, very senior official in the White House, They've talked about the fact that they actually openly asked and demanded access to uh, information on UAPs. And Webster Hubble, who's a very controversial convicted felon figure, but who worked for the White House as as a counsel, he has said that he was asked by Bill and actually delegated by Bill to go off and make inquiries. And uh, he says that essentially their attempts to get to the bottom of it were frustrated by a recalcitrant Pentagon and intelligent community who believed that it wasn't the president's right to know this information. What? And if that's, I know, it's incredible. You think about this. Your commanders in chief have been declined access to this information. And that's how is that even possible? Because I've been I mean, this is not some tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. I mean, one of my sources for this is Dan Sheehan, who's a very well respected civil rights lawyer, uh, who was retained by the space policy advisors to the White House under President Jimmy Carter in the 1970s. He was retained to essentially help write a report for the president on what the government knows about UAPs. And he tells me this incredible story. And I, I write about it in my book, where after much truculent resistance by the intelligence community, it was agreed that Dan singularly could go to a secure archive in the Library of Congress. And under heavy guard, he was allowed to review for one day the microfiche of the still unreleased redacted files, oh, sorry, the unreleased classified files of Project Blue Book, the information that the Air Force has allegedly still to this day withheld about Project Blue Book, its investigations into UFOs that finished in 1969, 1970. One of the things that Dan describes is that he, he realised there was no bloody way he was going to be able to read all these files in one day because it was literally a high-speed microfiche machine and probably miles of boxes of microfiche. And so he literally just started putting random bits of microfiche into the microfiche viewer and scrolling through looking for photographs. He puts in one microfiche, nothing there, no photos. A second microfiche, nothing there, no photos. And then I think it was the third microfiche where he told me and he stopped. And at the moment that he stopped, he realized there was a cover up. Because there on the photograph were images of American soldiers dressed in 1940s uniforms doing a retrieval of what was clearly a craft, a vehicle, a a crashed flying saucer. Now, Dan has gone on the record on this on multiple occasions. And I have confronted the people who retained him to write these reports because the crucial point that he makes and I, I again I say this in the book and I put it out there waiting for somebody to contradict me waiting to say oh it's wrong it's complete nonsense nobody has and one of the people that was involved in this was a woman called Marcia Smith who was the space policy advisor to President Carter she's now working in a private institute called the Space Policy Institute now she was the one that, with Dan Sheehan's assistance, wrote the reports that went to President Carter. But Dan says that before the reports went to Carter, he was shown a copy of the final reports. And you know what? The president wasn't told what Dan had seen in the archives of the Library of Congress from Project Blue Book. What? The president wasn't told. Now, this is a consistent theme because what Dan says is the reason why these reports were sought through the um, Library of Congress Research Department was because when Jimmy Carter became president in the caretaker period between his election in the November and the inauguration in January, 
He was so determined to get to the truth of the matter relating to UAPs, this is of course course in the 1970s, that he summons the then director of the CIA, who just so happened to be George Bush Sr., who later on, of course, went on to become the president. He was asked by President Carter to tell him, to give him a briefing about what the US government knew about UAPs. Now, we don't have Carter's word on this. Jimmy Carter won't respond to my requests for an interview, but we do have Dan Sheehan's, who's a a counsel, like he's an attorney, a very well-respected civil rights attorney, who frankly would lose his practicing license if he was caught lying or confabulating. Now, he has said this on repeated occasions. He says that he was told by Marcia Smith, President Carter's space policy advisor, that George W. Bush point blank refused to give his commander in chief a briefing on My UAPs. God. Ross, if the implications of what you're saying make this a, a far scarier phenomenon uh, politically than, than scientifically, it seems like. Can you imagine the circus of a congressional hearing that would that would ensue if, if this information came to light publicly? Well, the interesting thing is, I do think congressional the- hearings are going to happen. That dude almost said congressional theater. I think we're now at the point where I think it's inevitable that there will be congressional hearings. And uh, the issue is going to be if people are given an assurance that under oath they are waived from their national security oath and that they can speak in confidence and probably in camera to congressional oversight committees like the Senate Intelligence Committee, the Armed Services Committee, I think it's going to be a momentous period in American history because it will soon leak from those committees that people have made admissions that contradict the narrative that the American public and the world has been given for the past 70 to 80 years. My God. Ross, wow. And this is all in your book, In Plain Sight. That's correct, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I hope you don't mind if I ruthlessly plug no, my no, book from time to time. But it's the only way a bloke makes a living these days, frankly. But I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gratified when anybody, when anybody either reads my book. And I love, by the way, I love engaging with the audience that read my book. I've, I spend a large part of my day responding to emails. And the thing that's most gratifying for me as a journalist, as somebody who's worked in essentially analysis of evidence for the past 30 to 40 years. Um, I approached this as a sceptical journalist that had come from mainstream investigative journalism, working for Australia's equivalent of 60 Minutes and other public affairs television programs. And I, I fully expected, to be honest with you, that I was going to find that UFOs were a lot of rubbish, that 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 essentially there was a plausible explanation. The explanation that I favoured was that this was US technology being developed in the black, which, by the way, I suspect some of it might be. I I still think it's possible that the Tic Tacs were, in fact, US technology. But the thing that interests me is, as as I did my analysis and did my research, I met people like Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal, who'd written the New York Times stories, the groundbreaking New York Times stories from 2017. I spoke to fantastic investigative journalists like George Knapp, who'd done a lot of the work on Area 51. And I slowly came to the realisation that there is a solid body of evidence right there under our noses, which should convince on the scientific method, beyond any reasonable doubt, any reasonable person would come to the conclusion that there is a, a level of evidence that has been reached that, that more than sufficiently satisfies the civil burden of proof. It's beyond the balance of probabilities. It's, and I suspect we're getting close to a criminal burden of proof on beyond reasonable doubt that there is a phenomenon and, and there, there are vehicles operating in our atmosphere by life forms that are intelligent, technologically advanced to us, that are doing things we cannot explain. <sighs> and I rather, I rather suspect that we're going to have to be forcing our government. A lot of people talk about disclosure, that one day the president's just going to benignly stand in front of a lectern and, and admit all. I sincerely hope that's the case. But I think that 
part of the problem is that too many people in the military, the intelligence services, and most importantly, too many senior executives in a privileged position who've been spoon-fed this stuff in private aerospace, they've benefited for too long by lying and by deceiving and by actually corrupting the oversight process of the Congress and deceiving oversight committees. This is why people like Chris Mellon have got a hard-on to basically expose this because, you know, Chris was a senior staffer on the Senate Intelligence Committee. He was one of the people who was cleared to know all the secrets inside the US defense community and intelligence community because that was his role on the Senate Intelligence Committee as a staffer. And back in the 80s, when somebody was operating a technology which has become colloquially known as the Aurora, a craft that was clearly operating using apparent anti-gravitics in the 1980s, it was Chris Mellon who was given the response from inside the Defence Department inside the US that, no, this isn't ours, it's not ours. Now, I think any reasonable person would be led to the view now that if that's what Chris Mellon was told, he was lied to. Because clearly somebody somewhere inside the US defence and intelligence establishment knows a great deal. I think think the idea that we're going to get disclosure and we're going to have a patrician president standing up at a lectern telling us solemnly that the truth really is out there and that that we really have been visited by alien life forms, I don't think that's ever going to happen, ever going to happen. Officialdom will be dragged kicking and screaming only with aggressive investigative journalism. Only if people like your listeners start demanding and making this a political issue for sure one of the things in america that astonishes me is that you have a a much stronger sense of civics i think you're still taught civics in schools and people you're taught how to complain how to complain you're taught how to use your political leadership a lot of the commonwealth countries like australia and new zealand people just meekly accept what government tell them you know they put up with ridiculous secrecy laws they they put up with ridiculous restraints on access to information and the great thing about america the thing that makes me very positive for your country is that whilst you've had a few lunatics running the asylum for a while you've still (laughs) got a solid base of people who understand constitutional democracy you have rights freedom of expression you have rights for access to information you have rights to to essentially find stuff out And so what I'm saying is, I don't think disclosure is just going to happen. Disclosure is going to happen if and when the American public start asking for it and start shaking the cage and saying, the truth is out there and I've got a damn right to know.
Yeah, that was fucking badass, dude. That went fucking phenomenal. He he sounds even more charming talking to him directly. <laughs> I've got a I've got a man crush on him. <laughs> yeah, dude, really, really incredible, dude. You know, when you left for a minute, he 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 told me he said, "God, man, that 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 Rob, he's a really great guy. He sure is handsome." He definitely did not say that because I didn't leave you for a minute. I've been plugged. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was fucking awesome. I still didn't get to ask the fucking, you know, the Tom DeLong. The, well, here's the here's the, what I was you know, what, the point that I was trying to make is that I was reading about Adamski, yeah. you know, and all those contactees where it seems like why would they pick this fucking hillbilly? You know, it's like what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> and then so and then suddenly the U.S. No, no, no. DeLong DeLong's family was tied in. I don't know if you heard me and Anthony Ross Kennedy talking about it that one time. DeLong's mother maybe was a Fed or one of them was inside the government anyway. Is it yeah. true? I don't know. I haven't fact checked. I got my phone right here in front of me. Let's see. I don't know. Here's something about Tom DeLong taking his pants off. I'm getting there. Hold on. Good God Lord. damn it. Personal. I hate LinkedIn. What the fuck is all this shit? God. Well, let's, let's get off. Let's get off I'm, this. I'm looking at this. Hold on. I'm looking at this Tom DeLong parents thing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's see who his parents were. According to LinkedIn, because, you know, that's the perfect source for all valid fucking information. Uh, God, it was like fucking piggy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Candace DeLong is a former FBI criminal profiler and the mother of Tom DeLong. So it's FBI, not CIA. Well, that makes sense, yeah. I guess. I said FBI. No, you said CIA, dude. Motherfucker, I didn't go back and listen to the recording. I said FBI. I might have said CIA. I might have said FBI or CIA or something, but I knew she was something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. This is going to be solid. Well, I want it to be a call to action, man. I, I I would like to. There's a website that you can create petitions for the government. Right. I'd like to put something together, and and link to it. All right, dude. Um, All right, later, bro. All right, bye.